I remember the first time I went to get like HIV testing, STI testing, and they asked me if I had sex with men, women, or both, which I get that we've come a very long way to ask, but I remember responding men. And then they continued to talk about me as if I'm a cisgender man and my partner's a cisgender man. And so all the information they gave me was not relevant to our bodies. And about midway in between, I was like, surprise, I'm a trans man and my partner's a trans man. And none, none of the information you gave me is helpful. That's the inimitable Nathan Levitt describing one of his few particularly memorable encounters with the healthcare system as a transgender man, which actually inspired him to become a nurse practitioner himself and an educator in the transgender community. And with that, welcome to Core I Am Five Pearls Podcast. This is Dr. Marty Freed, a primary care physician at the Ohio State Wexner Medical Center. And Dr. Shreya Trivedi, a population health fellow at NYU. Today we are beginning a two-part series on comprehensive transgender care, starting with a deep dive into gender-affirming care. We have many people to thank for this episode. Uh, most of them you'll hear later on the episode, but particularly want to give a shout out to Gabby Mayer, a fourth-year medical student at NYU, for helping off-air produce and doing the show notes for, for this episode. So thank you to her. So before we get started, I wanted to quickly acknowledge the incredible importance of language around this topic, probably more so than the other topics we've covered in the Five Pearls segment. Shrey and I have tried really hard to be mindful of the words that we are using, but we acknowledge that we're approaching this from a cis perspective and definitely still have blind spots. So if there's something in our language or phrasing that you take issue with or you think can be improved, please shoot us a tweet at Coriam Podcast to help educate us and the amazing Med Twitter community. So without further ado, let's get started on the pearls we'll be covering. Remember, the more you test yourself, the deeper your learning gains. Pearl 1, patient identity. How do the letters LGBTQ relate to gender and sexuality? And what is your approach to understanding your patient's identity? Pearl 2, gender dysphoria. What is gender dysphoria, and what are some alternative ways you might code the care you give to a transgender patient? Pearl 3, the organ inventory. How do you ask about a patient's body parts, and how do you minimize discomfort around that conversation? Part 4, mistakes. What's your approach if and when you make a mistake with a transgender patient? And Pearl 5, the clinical environment. What strategies can you use to promote a gender-affirming clinical environment? All right, so Nathan's point from the intro story that you heard was that we can't make assumptions that just because Nathan is attracted to men, that he's one, a cisgender gay man, and two, how Nathan identifies himself could be very different. Affirming care really begins with understanding the full complexity of who our patients are and using the right language to address them. So that is Dr. Richard Green. Not only is Dr. Green a great friend and trusted mentor, but he runs the Pride Center at Bellevue Hospital in New York City. All right, Shrike, we need to start with something super basic here. Just the letters LGBTQ+. That plus acknowledges that some of these letters are somewhat reductionist and probably don't include everyone who identifies within the broader LGBTQ community. So understanding their gender and their sexuality is really important. Often we use the terms LGBTQ or LGBTQ+, and there are so many letters, and I think sometimes we start to confuse sexuality and gender. Uh, and when we're talking about gender-affirming care, we're really trying to understand our patient's gender and really affirm that for them. Okay, I had to replay that a bunch of times. Yeah, I never really appreciated the really important differences in gender versus sexuality. 
The letters we toss around all the time, right? LGBTQ, but LG and B, lesbian, gay, bisexual, are examples of sexuality or sexual orientation, which again describe who someone is physically and emotionally attracted to. The T for transgender is actually much different than sexuality. That describes how one's gender identity is different than one's sex assigned at birth. And this idea is explained really nicely in the Gender Unicorn infographic. If you haven't seen it, we'll link it in our transcript. You have to check it out. Basically, the gender unicorn goes through different parts of oneself. There is someone's gender identity, gender expression, sex assigned at birth, and then who they are physically or emotionally attracted to, all of which we're going to break down in a minute. But the main message is that these parts of oneself can really exist on a spectrum for our patients. So to, to start off with gender identity, that's one's deeply held belief of, of who they are. So terms that people will use to describe their gender identity will be man, woman, um, trans man, trans woman, perhaps non-binary. And so, you know, so someone that identifies as non-binary means that, you know, maybe not exclusively man or woman, somewhere in between. Other terms that trans, and so that is from the Latin term opposite. So that means that someone's gender identity is different from their sex assigned at birth. Again, that's kind of an umbrella term. And then cis means on the same side. So someone's gender identity aligns with their uh, sex assigned at birth. That's Dr. Brandon Pollack, a primary care HIV specialist with a strong clinical interest in LGBTQ health at The Ohio State University. The next thing on the gender unicorn that is, is gender expression. So this is a culturally defined um, concept that is one's outward portrayal of um, their their gender identity. Um, and, and it might not be all the time, depending on the situation, if someone feels safe, etc. It could be very fluid if someone identifies as gender queer. Some days they might present more fe- feminine or, or masculine and vice versa. But examples in Western culture would be like dress, so like clothing. And that's one way to think about gender, their identity and their expression both existing on a spectrum. But that's different from one's sexuality, which is who one is either physically and or emotionally attracted to. Yeah, and laying this out helps us understand what the Q in LGBTQ plus can mean. It can mean questioning in a self-discovery way, like still trying to figure out what partner they connect with or finding an expression that matches their identity. But Q can actually more commonly refer to queer which is an adjective used by some people, particularly younger people, whose sexual orientation is not exclusively heterosexual or whose gender identity is not exclusively cisgender. In the younger generation, it's kind of been reclaimed as basically saying that you are different from kind of the mainstream norm. So in terms of sexual um, orientation, it you know, someone that does identify as gay might also identify as queer. It might have some... some uh, it's kind of spectrum between maybe pansexual or bisexual or asexual, whatever. It just means that they're kind of identifying probably outside of the norm. Um, and then in terms of gender identity, I think people also use um, gender queer or queer, meaning that their gender identity is is something different than um, someone that identifies as cis. So a- again, it might mean someone that might be presenting more like a, a trans woman or a trans man, but then they, they might use queer. And it's it's a totally kind of separate gender identity, and, and it's sort of kind of a unique experience to that person. So Dr. Pollock is really hammering home the idea that the term queer is a catch-all term that is individually defined and means something different to everyone. So if we hear it, we can ask for clarification, like, 
What does being queer mean to you? Another time our patient's identity comes up is in our documentation. I think people's documentation, including my own before this episode, was usually for our transgender patients, something like male to female, MTF, or female to male, FTM. Yeah, me too. And what we realize is the problem with MTF or FTM is that it grounds people in a biology that doesn't at all reflect their spectrum of their identity. And so what we learned instead was it might be better to document assigned female at birth or assigned male at birth. Shorthand AFAB or AMAB. Yeah, and this helps because what it does is that it leaves room to then understand the broader spectrum how that patient currently identifies. So this is usually a two-step process. First, identify your patient's gender, usually male or female, followed by their sex assigned at birth. This might look something like 35-year-old man assigned female at birth who is presenting for preventative care and screenings. All right, the last thing we should cover on identity is how the pronouns our patients use are crucial to providing gender-affirming care. And I think the win in the larger transgender conversation is that more and more clinicians are getting training and actually adopting asking their patients their pronouns. Dr. Carl Street, a research lead at Boston University for Transgender Medicine and Surgery, talks very practically about how he addresses pronouns. So I often try to lead by example. I'll say who I am, like, hi, I'm Carl. I'm your, your doctor for today. My pronouns are he, him, his. Um, if there's a situation where that might not naturally flow at the moment, especially if I'm in a rush, as we often are in the clinic, um, I do have pronoun pins actually on my ID. Um, I think that makes a big difference in terms of at least at minimum signaling to the individual that they could share their own. And the question is important not only to collect that information for our trans patients, but also as a teaching opportunity for others who might feel less familiar with the idea of pronouns. Yes. And just to highlight that with a quick story, the other day, my father, who has grown up in a quite traditional society in India uh, for for decades, went to his PCP um, and was asked his pronouns, to which my dad very endearingly responded, what is pronoun? And it turned into this whole teaching point on many levels because, yes, he did learn what a pronoun was, but it was actually a good kind of role modeling that, you know, hey, you know, this is accepted in our society where we want to understand how individuals are identified and this is a norm. Oh, man, props to your dad's PCP was asking about <laughs> pronouns. <laughs> yes. All right, so let's summarize Pearl 1. First, remember that the letters LGBTQ plus represent both sexuality and gender. The point is that gender and sexuality both exist on their own unique spectrum, and we should be careful about making assumptions about sexual attraction or behavior based on gender identity or expression. We can introduce our own pronouns in a number of ways, on our name tag, at the first visit, on the bottom of our cards, and it really opens the door to have a conversation with our patients and also to let them know that we are allies and we want to learn their pronouns. Yes. And if a patient's confused by the pronoun question, it is a moment to educate. All right. So we're in the clinic. Uh, We're getting a shared understanding of our patient's gender identity and sexual preferences. But as you go to open the note and see the chart a little bit more, you see the diagnosis of gender dysphoria. I remember learning about gender dysphoria as this deep conflict between someone's internal identity and external presentation. And I used to think that every trans person probably has it to some degree or another. But Nathan explains that it's a more nuanced area than we realize. 
Dysphoria is tough because I think for some trans patients, they may really identify with that. They feel dysphoric, right? They feel like their body uh, doesn't match the way they feel on the inside, their identity. Uh, and for some patients, they don't. And so I think there's this messaging that all trans patients feel dysphoria, which is absolutely not true. Uh, like for myself, I don't. Um, perhaps I did at one point in my life, but I wouldn't use that language to describe myself. And I don't love that diagnosis being in my chart. So this was really transformative for me, that just because a person identifies as transgender does not mean that they automatically have gender dysphoria. But then that got me thinking about what we write in the chart and how that might actually not reflect what's going on with the patient. We use this diagnosis code. Often it makes it easier to get things covered. We know that you may not at all identify with this language, but we want to let you know that you might see this in your chart. And I have feelings about what it about sort of what is the long-term effects of having this in someone's chart. And I don't have easy answers, but I also feel like people getting their surgery. I've had a patient say to me, use whatever you want so I can get my surgery covered. That's eye-opening, thinking about what we do to get things done for our patients in our current insurance system. But say you're not worried about getting insurance coverage for, say, an upcoming procedure or something. What other diagnosis could we use to reflect the care that we provide? Yeah, I've started to use the code hormone imbalance when I'm not dealing with surgery because I think it's a correct term from a physiologic perspective without the baggage of the term dysphoria. So an example of how we would turn that diagnosis around is rather than having a psychiatric diagnosis for what's going on with trans and non-binary people to really think about normalizing the condition and saying, so for example, a transgender man lacks testosterone. And so we could call that condition hypogonadism, the same as we would in any man who lacks testosterone. Uh, and so to not frame things in a medical context as pathology, but only in terms of what we're doing to restore normal order. I can only hope to be this thoughtful about all my ICD codes as Dr. Green is and sounds like as you are, Marty. All right, but to recap what I took away on this pearl on gender dysphoria, it's to be careful about not making assumptions that all trans people have gender dysphoria. And when we are documenting and coding visits, consider alternative diagnoses that might better capture the clinical encounter. And if you do see gender dysphoria in the chart, just be open-minded that it could be from more of an insurance or system level perspective. A lot of the pitfalls we fall into during the care of transgender people involves assumptions, right? So we just discussed avoiding the assumption that all trans people have gender dysphoria. A related idea is that we should avoid assumptions around body parts. Yeah, and some refer to this discussion around body parts as, quote unquote, an organ inventory. Um, and this is basically an open-ended question or two that allows a patient to let us know how they refer to their body parts. So for example, I might say to my patient, hey, I really want to make sure I know what what parts of your body might need to be screened. Can you tell me what organs you have or what you've had removed as a part of your transition? Uh, and then people can name their body parts for me. Uh, and I sometimes might say, you know, a word that I might describe as your vagina, what word would you use to describe that body part? And then do you still have a cervix? or not? And is that a word you're comfortable with? Yeah, it took me a while to get comfortable asking patients about their transition, if they've had any surgeries, uh, what they call or prefer to call their body parts, but it can be quite meaningful. I remember before I had chest surgery, um, all the clinicians would say like breast cancer screening or breast screenings, or we need to examine your breasts. And I remember finally after like the 20th time someone said it, I said, can you just say chest? And that was it, right? That was a life changing for me. It just use a different word. So I've listened to Nathan's interview no less than three times, and I am constantly shocked by the simplicity of this intervention. 
just use a different word. And I'm also struck by how long it took him to ask for that. He said something like the 20th time. And he's like the model patient, right? So if it took Nathan 20 times to say something, then others are probably just getting steamrolled with the language we are using that could unintentionally make them super uncomfortable. Exactly. It makes you really think twice. All right. So summarize this pearl on organ inventory. Start with asking an open-ended question. Hey, tell me about your transition. And if it doesn't come up organically, you can say something to the effect of, yeah, I just want to make sure we get the preventive health screening that you need. So tell me more if you've had any surgeries um, as a part of your transition. So this not only helps you determine the future preventative health screenings. Plugging episode two of Transgender Care, which will be airing next Wednesday. But it also gives you information about how patients refer to sensitive areas of their body. And also remember, this doesn't have to happen in the first meeting. Yeah, and so don't put as much pressure on yourself. Okay, so I think one of the things that I really took home from our conversations with these experts is that all clinicians will make mistakes. Naturally, Nathan had a few um, unfortunate stories. I've come in to urgent care for just a, a cough that wouldn't go away, and I had questions about my genitalia when the the clinician learned that I was trans. Now, I'm also a provider, so I know like when and if to share certain information. Like I didn't necessarily think my trans status was important to the cough. I'm going to go out on a limb here and suggest that Nathan's genitalia were not relevant to his cough. Yes, fishing for some zebras in the urgent care setting, I think. But (laughs) the point here is that learning how to better uh, do gender-affirming care means we're going to have to leave our comfort zone and ask questions that might feel unnatural or even awkward at first. I definitely mess up on occasion. And, and the way I really explain it is like, I, you'll recognize a facial expression change or the tone change. You'll be like, I'm so sorry. I, I, if you immediately recognize it, just say like, oh, I'm so sorry. Let me correct myself. Um, or if, if you say something you're not fully aware, sometimes you can ask the patient, I'm sorry, did I say something incorrect? My apologies. Can you tell me what I can do better next time? Things like that. And Nathan reminded us of a major pitfall to avoid when apologizing. Don't spend a lot of time sort of going over and over. Oh, I'm usually so great about trans care. I have a trans friend, whatever it might be, which are all things I've gotten before. Oh, my. Okay. So to sum up this pearl, mistakes happen when providing trans care, and that's okay. Look for evidence of mistakes in the verbal and nonverbal responses from your patients and apologize and make a plan to avoid similar mistakes in the future. And that apology is probably not the right time to mention how much your trans neighbor really loves you. (laughs) No, no, not at all. Okay, so we spent a lot of this episode discussing strategies for gender-affirming care within that patient-provider relationship. But what about the gender-affirming clinical environment? How can we walk the walk after we talk the talk? Or even get the chance to talk the talk, right? We might be cutting people off even before they enter our exam rooms. And as one trans person from our Twitter community when we put a call out for this episode said, very honestly, if there's not a place for me in your forms, there isn't a place for me in your office. And so it really made me think about when was the last time I reviewed that sex gender field in my clinic's pre-visit checklist? Ideally, our patients should be provided with a two-step method of gender identification, the sex assigned at birth, and a separate gender identity question with both a check-all-that-apply options and not specified with a fill-in-the-blank field. 
Right. And one of the blind spots that the Twitter community also pointed out was that patients often get clinical forms mailed to them even before the visit. So there might already be messaging about a clinic's gender-affirming environment before they even get to our office. And then thinking about the physical space of the clinic, Dr. Green actually has a few great stories about how he really thoroughly considered even the entrance to the clinic as a potential barrier for care. Our systems are often really challenging for them to navigate. And so an example that I like to give people is something that's very difficult for our trans male patients is to think about cervical cancer screening. Having a pap, if that body part is something that makes you uncomfortable, is going to be a really exquisitely uncomfortable thing to do. I called the head of GYN and said, listen, I have a trans man who's uncomfortable having this exam. What can I do to really smooth this uh, process for him? Head of GYN at this new clinic said... Uh, why don't we schedule him as the first patient of the day? And when he gets there, he'll check in with the administrator and they'll take him immediately back to a room so he doesn't sit in a waiting room full of women wondering why he's there without a female partner. And the other thing to think about is our patients' bathrooms. Are the bathrooms in our clinic separated by gender? And if so, do they have to be? Or even thinking about the reading material in your waiting room, a way to promote gender-affirming care is to think about how many of those magazines highlight LGBTQ plus people. We encourage you to take an inventory today about the messages you are sending to your patients in the waiting room before they see anybody from the clinical team. Right. The last point about the clinical environment is a subtle but obvious clues that's a safe environment for LGBTQ plus people. So having a trans pride flag sticker, pronoun pin, goes a long way for our patients to know that, hey, this is a place that's a judgment-free zone and a safe space for them. And we really should be training all staff, particularly the patient-facing staff, around LGBTQ competencies. The sub-point here is that this should not be in the form of a mandated webinar. Please, 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 any administrators out there who happen to be listening to this episode, the answer to this problem is not another webinar. No, no. Instead, uh, do some role playing and flip classrooms around this work. But that's that's me as an educator. <laughs> All right. So to summarize, gender affirming care actually starts probably way before you get a chance to see your transgender patients. You know, you can work with your clinic and hospital leadership to address some predictable issues like gendered bathrooms or non-inclusive forms and just encourage you all to kind of put yourself in the shoes of a patient going through your clinic and think about the messaging that they might be getting. And that's a wrap for today's episode. Next Wednesday, we will get more into hormone therapy and prevention in transgender care. Thank you to Hurry Shaw for audio editing and thanks to you. If you like this episode, give us a rating on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use. It certainly does help people find us. And as always, we are learning and we welcome any feedback. And as always, Opinions expressed in this podcast are our own and do not represent the opinions of any affiliated institutions. With that, thank you and take care.